Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. Authenticity has replaced production value, and that was the magic. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. My name is Mark Horvath. I'm the founder of Invisible People, which is a unique digital storytelling organization that uses social media and YouTube to educate the public about homelessness. Why that's important is I really believe that our inability, when I say our, I mean the general public, inability to relate to homelessness is our biggest obstacle to ending it. Are many Americans one paycheck away from homelessness? Well, after the 2008 financial crash, I assumed yes. A January 20, 2018 Market Watch article says that millions of Americans are one paycheck away from homelessness. Just 39% of Americans say they have enough savings to cover a $1,000 emergency room visit or car repair. Can you identify with this statistic? Mark Horvath has a different viewpoint. I met Mark in 2012 downtown Chicago at a conference where he was telling the InvisiblePeople.tv story. He has been interviewing individuals who are homeless across the United States for years. As he told more stories, his YouTube channel just grew and grew, becoming one of the top channels on YouTube, even being featured on the homepage. When I met him, GM just became a sponsor and presented him with an SUV so he could continue traveling and telling more stories. Mark is a special person, one with passion and a true desire to bring the stories of the homeless population to the forefront. His passion comes with experience. Once homeless, he understands firsthand how America's forgotten are more than just people. They are part of this great American fabric we call home. Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, and then the county of Los Angeles brought me in to help on two bond measures. Now, I, my part was really small. I did, you know, some of the digital strategy and visible people played a, a larger part in the digital storytelling. But what we learned, because both bond measures passed, so we increased taxes is people are willing to pay for homelessness to get out of sight. But now, even though Los Angeles County and the city of Los Angeles has all this money, they're having trouble building facilities, creating facilities, because, yeah, I'm going to pay more taxes to get homeless people out of my sight, but I, I just, I just don't want them anywhere near where I live or where I work or where I play. And that's a big crisis because homeless people are already there. They're already there. And if we don't do something to help them, it's going to get worse. So I uh, read a uh, NPR article about you from 2010. It described you in the single quote is, a former Hollywood insider, Mark Horvath, has been a drug addict, a con artist, a brief period of homelessness. 
He says that life is left behind, and these days he's drawn on his dark past to inspire his website, invisiblepeople.tv. Tell us about that quote and describe what that means. Well, you might not like my answer here because that is definitely, uh, what do they call it, Uh, uh, creative license because I was never a con man. Um, (laughs) So if you Google that, Mark Horvath NPR, it's a wonderful interview. Uh, They walked down Hollywood Boulevard with me when I was first starting out. I was speaking at NYU. And they played the audio clip in class, and I forgot what an amazing interview that is. Now, that one description of me, (laughs) there's so many other good descriptions um, that don't say con artists or drawing on uh, your dark past. And I mean, you know, there's some truth to that in the way that, you know, I was once homeless, and now I'm working to help homeless people. I don't necessarily... Uh, you know, it's poetic license, whatever, you know, the, uh, the person writing that headline and writing that description was making it a, a little more attractive, but you know, the, the story, uh, you know, I, I grew up, uh, playing music, uh, doing drugs, selling drugs, uh, not what you would call a good kid. In fact, uh, PBS has a documentary on me and my work, and they interview my mom, and she says, he's the devil on wheels, or was the devil. He was was good until he was nine years old, and then he was the devil on wheels. So I moved to Los Angeles in 1987, March 28, 1987, to seek fame and fortune. I did. I uh, uh, ended up uh, uh, getting sober. But I've done everything both good and bad in Hollywood that anybody can do. I mean, I've, I've worked on movies. I did a little bit of acting. I uh, ended up working in the television industry, uh, making sure the world got programs like Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Married with Children, 21 Jump Street. Now, it was television syndication. So from 90, 1990 to 1994, any place in the world, if you watch it, any one of those shows – me or my department that I manage directly responsible for getting those shows to your TV set. It was a whole different world back then. In fact, uh, you know, videotape was when I started in television video, they called them quads. They were two inch tape. Yep. And, I remember that. <laughs> so uh, that was a long time ago. Cause we don't even use tape anymore. So, so um, you know, through circumstances, some not of my own, and I continued to be a high-functioning drug addict alcoholic, that was definitely my fault, but there were some uh, external circumstances. Then I ended up on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard, homeless. I literally sold pictures of my iguana to tourists in front of the Chinese theater to survive. And uh, I rebuilt my life back to a three-bedroom house and a uh, pool in the backyard, new car in the garage. And in 2008, the economy tanked. So I lost everything again. Uh, It was a very dark time. Uh, I mean, in 2008, people weren't saying the R word yet. They weren't saying recession. If I had known back then what I know now, I would have just walked away from my house. So all of a sudden, I found myself unemployed, and uh, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I'll get a job in a month. Um, and so I started paying 
uh, all my bills with my credit card. I mean, I literally went from homeless to homeowner. I did it myself, got myself back to, you know, a functioning member of society and found myself unemployed, paying uh, for, you know, my mortgage and electric bill and food, thinking everything's going to get better. So um, at the end of, you know, nine months or so, I had huge credit card debt and lost the house to foreclosure anyways. So, um, uh, you know, it, it just was a spiraling journey back uh, into homelessness. In fact, you know, at the nine-month mark, I, I took a job as a marketing manager back in Los Angeles. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to live in Los Angeles on 80000 It was like a 40000 cut and pay. How am I going to live in Los Angeles on 80000 Because at the time, you know, I was still trying to pay my mortgage, pay rent. You know, Los Angeles is expensive. Uh, was interesting because that year, I think I grossed 14000 total. Uh, the place that hired me, you know, I was the last hired. So then it's the first day I had to lay off 50 people. So I was the last one in the door, first one out the door. And it was a really dark time. It was um, because I wanted to work. I was able to work. There just was no work. Now, by uh, I, I thought I would be able to go back into the movie industry. I um, uh, was apprentice special effects, cut some film, uh, even did some acting, like I said earlier. But even the movie you know, industry started cutting back when uh, I worked in TV, for example, the, uh, uh, you know, a, a news crew would have a, a cameraman, an audio person, a talent producer, maybe even a script and a camera utility. Now it's all one person, you know, everybody's been cutting. So here I was unemployed, uh, really no hope. And I didn't know what to do. I got to backtrack one second. So I was uh, in my boss's office and he had this book called Finding Grace, which is a black and white coffee table book. Uh, some CEO uh, had made this. Uh, it's sold on Amazon. And it was a really interesting book. And I, I, I said to myself, gosh, I could do this in video. So then I got, I got laid off and had the time. Uh, but the two interesting nuggets to that so that's where the idea came from is my boss at the time was just, Oh my gosh, he was such a top marketer. He was, uh, I really took the job because of him. And I asked him, should I start a video blog on homelessness? And he didn't respond. And, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make is so often we ask our family, our friends, should we do something? And we put, you know, all the eggs in their basket. Because if Brad said, no, you shouldn't, I probably wouldn't have ever started Invisible People. But he didn't respond. And uh, about a year, a year ago, we had lunch and I asked him, I said, Brad, you know, I asked you if I should start this and you never responded. And he says, I was just busy. <laughs> you know, he was just busy. But I, I had put you know, everything when, you know, you have an idea. I mean, Walt Disney's own wife and brother told him the mouse thing was crazy. And, you know, so the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, if you have an idea that's your passion in your heart, go for it. Try it. Don't 
put it out there to other people to judge because more often than not, they're going to say that's a dumb idea and you might not start something that's amazing. The other one was the, here I am unemployed. I got this idea of a video blog, but at the time I had a a video editing uh, heart, you know, workstation that I lost when I lost my house to foreclosure. I had, you know, ended up selling a lot of stuff. So I had a laptop with a 5,400 hard drive that I couldn't cut video. So here I was, I have this idea, um, but I, I need to, to me, video has to have B-roll, it has to have music, it has to have graphics. I want to win an Emmy. I mean, you know, you got to edit the video. So I had this idea of starting a video blog, but I was looking at everything I didn't have. I, I I can't edit it. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't put music on it. I can't, I can't, I can't. And for a week, I looked at the I can'ts. And then I looked at what I had. And all I had at the time was this dinky laptop. I couldn't edit the video, but I could upload it. So I went out and I started interviewing homeless people and I uploaded it raw unedited. And that was the magic. Authenticity has replaced production value. And, you know, I, I want to tell you that I, it was my marketing genius. And there's, you know, some thought and skill that went on behind the scenes to, to make invisible people. But it was really, I was giving myself purpose to get up in the morning. And the magic part of it, the, the, the videos being raw, unedited, unfiltered, uh, really came about just because I was looking at what I had instead of what I didn't. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to upload this stuff. Nobody's going to watch this anyway. And that was the magic. And since then, you know, YouTube's given me their homepage for a day. We get about 4 million views a month on YouTube. We're going to break 200,000 subs, which is unbelievable for a nonprofit, but a nonprofit that provides a platform for homeless people, it's it's a true miracle. And, um, you know, I could go on and on. Housing programs have started and feeding programs have started. And, and the bottom line is if you go back 10 years ago, I almost didn't do it. I almost didn't do it because two things. I, I, I put it all in Brad's court and uh, uh, thank God he didn't respond. And uh, I was looking at what I didn't have. And when I finally turned around and looked at what I have, I, I just went and made it happen. Let's go back to 2008, about that crash time. And this is when a lot of the social outlets really exploded. You know, we saw Twitter jump, Facebook jump, YouTube was really blowing up. Do you feel like you were an early adopter of those platforms telling your story? And because of that, you just leveraged them and grew. And it was through that adoption rate of these platforms, you kind of leveraged that opportunity in that growth period. Do you think that's true? I think there's part of that is true. I, what I believe is there was a couple of things that, that happened is, one, I was the first. What do you mean by the first? You know, Apple with uh, iTunes and MP3 players and iPhone. When you're first, market share, FedEx uh, is another one. When you're, you're first, it gives you an advantage. I think that played more of a part being the the first than 
being an early adapter. I mean, I was, uh, the other thing is that I, core foundation is I'm trying to reach the general public. Most nonprofits are doing, look at me, look at me, give us money, look at me, come volunteer, look at me, give us money. I realized that I have to present information, I have to do storytelling in a lens of what people want to hear, not necessarily what I want to say. So nonprofits and businesses do it too. They say, oh, we got this new product. We got this new service. We got to tell the world about it. Instead of looking and saying, okay, what does the world want to listen to? What does the world want to hear? And it's also very important to provide value. And when you put them all together, I got to add one more. My expertise is response television. And so my storytelling on social media is often based on tactics that I honed producing response television. Response television is infomercials. And um, so when you when you add that all together, being a first, I mean, back then I was the pretty much the only homeless service provider on social media. I'm still the only nonprofit that empowers homeless people. A lot of nonprofits do formally homeless people and they they use it, they're presenting it in a trophy. Hey, look, we ended homelessness where I'm giving raw, real, authentic, you know, stories of people still in some state of homelessness. And then the response television tricks that I use that, you know, some people call asynchronous uh, storytelling. I call it reality twittering. Uh, and, and, and you add those all together. But what's interesting about what you said and something I'm so very conscious of um, uh, is that, um, you know, back eight, nine years ago, the social media influencers, the, the people that were early jumping on Twitter and everything else, many uh, I call friends to this day um, are kind of dinosaurs now. And there's this new tribe um, of young adults that are coming up and they're and, uh, and like saying, oh, this Twitter thing's really cool. It's my favorite channel. And I'm like, you know, okay, yeah, I feel like, you know, that, that, that old father saying back when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, where I'm seeing it. And I think it's, it's most important when it comes in the context of storytelling is a lot of us old dinosaurs Social media land jumped off Twitter. I, I I still tweet. It's still my one of my primary. But they, oh, well, we're not getting the engagement we once did. And if you look at YouTubers and many YouTubers with us that don't have a huge network, they have huge engagement because they're talking to people. They're not just broadcasting. And us old marketers, we eventually went back to what we all were, always do. We broadcast. We complained about it. We said, you know, social media is engagement. You don't broadcast. But then we ended up broadcasting. And then we said, oh, this Twitter thing doesn't work. And uh, so I, I I go to events now where, 
you know, I was once a speaker and now nobody knows who I am. And there's some advantages to that, but it also hits the ego a little bit too. You're like, you know, back in the day, you know, this Twitter thing, yeah, you know, I was on CNN three times, da, 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 you know, and uh, uh, it's just interesting how life progresses. You know, we, we get our 15 minutes, I might have had 14 and a half, and, uh, you know, life moves on. So let's talk a little bit about uh, invisible people. How do you find these stories? And I know that seems kind of a very basic question and some not so intuitive. But obviously, there's a lot of stories on the site at InvisiblePeople.tv. How do you find these stories? Interesting enough, there's never been enough funding. It's getting close, but there's never been enough funding um, to hire even one person. So I, I work other jobs. Uh, currently, I freelance marketing, uh, but I've gone from having uh, temp jobs at homeless shelters to even uh, CMO gigs at large nonprofits uh, to fund my own uh, rent and food. But how Invisible People evolved was, I'll give you a great example. I uh, was asked to keynote a uh, breakfast uh, for marketers in Dallas. So they're paying for the airfare and they're paying for uh, the hotel and they're giving me an honorarium to speak. So I take that honorarium and I extend out the hotel and I rent a car and uh, then I go around and I connect with homeless service providers and homeless people. Uh, similar example, I last two years, I was asked to keynote conferences in Lansing, Michigan, and they fly you into Detroit. Well, since I got to rent a car and I'm in Detroit, I might as well drive around Michigan. So uh, it's interesting because um, I either come home broke or maybe even I spend a couple hundred dollars. Uh, But that is how the storytelling, the back end logistics of invisible people has been funded and a big part of how the stories happen. As cool as that is, it's, you know, I mean, I love organic, you know, uh, you know, serendipity in life. I just, I, I, I love when things, good things happen organically, but it hinders me because of that lack of funding to be able to go places where there's intentional storytelling that will have more impact. I'll use Prop HHH and Measure H in Los Angeles as an example. First, the city brought me in for Prop HHH. Uh, There was good funding. It wasn't great, but there was enough. We did research so we knew what stories would move what people. And then I went out on the streets targeting certain kinds of stories to put online to move people. Much more intentional. Um, and the same, then, uh, the county brought me back for measure H very important because, um, the case study, uh, seven of the top 10 posts came from me far, far above. There was a celebrity video that was done. I think that was number four of the most shared, uh, the, the LA times, I believe was number eight. LA Times has 2.2 million Twitter followers. I think at the time I had 42,000. What it showed was that the individual stories resonate with people more so than facts, more so than celebrity endorsements. 
Now, the case study from that is if you research, you find the right messaging, you know the audience, then you create that messaging. In this case, it's invisible people stories. And you have a clear call to action, vote. It works. You know, Uh, research, messaging, know your audience, call to action, you'll have success. Eventually, that is where I'd love invisible people to get to. That's what I've been working now 10 years. I'm still like a startup Um, because that's where the impact is. Sadly, the philanthropy in the homeless services sector still does not see the value in messaging. See, there's some change. Um, There's a a charity in uh, the UK called Crisis that actually did research into messaging. Then they looked around and they went and started their own invisible people. They looked around and said, well, who's doing it right? Well, this guy is. We're going to do something similar. And in fact, I was in London uh, two summers ago and helped train their storyteller. Um, It works. It's just kind of uh, a little bit. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know how much you work in the nonprofit sector, but the nonprofit sector is just so behind when it comes to anything marketing and so behind when it comes to anything technology. They're they're still looking around and saying, oh, we need a billboard. Uh, they don't realize um, uh, the power of messaging. And I got to state that the nonprofit sector actually puts out a bunch of bad messaging that counters what we're trying to do. Uh, example is missions, um, uh, mostly faith-based organizations, but some uh, they put out needs-based images saying, you know, $1.99 for a meal. And they're giving the impression and basically teaching, uh, reinforcing bad messaging with the public that homeless people are just needy people that are hungry. And it's not the truth. You know what I mean? Uh, But that's the messaging majority of the public receives. Now, let's say like the Dallas, I get some funding or, you know, somebody flies me in to speak. I got an extra day. I go walk around with the camera. It really is uh, kind of safety first. There's some environments that I wish I could go into, uh, but they might not be safe. And that's not just a homeless thing. We live in a really weird world right now. Um, And there's just some places that are not safe. And that might be that they aren't safe or I perceive them not as safe. So I have to find areas where I um, feel uh, uh, safe. The other is I target the story because you all know that there's the guy with the cardboard sign. And sadly, those stories are everywhere. And those stories are important, but it's the hidden homeless. I mean, 35% of homeless people are women and children. I think 50% of those are kids underneath six years old, younger than six years old. You don't see those homeless people. So I work with service providers to connect with families in hotels, transgender people, um, you know, the stories that you need to hear, but they don't, aren't normally what you see in here. Um, so 
that is a big part of it. And the other is just organically walking around with a bag of socks. You know, I just love meeting people and saying hello. Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. Well, one of the things that I do know as a former photojournalist, you know, I worked in television all over the country for many years as a producer, photojournalist, reporter, the whole, everybody in one. And when I was in Phoenix working there, uh, I spent a while working in the homeless population telling stories. One of the things that I learned at that time was, and then in, in the business that we do every day, is that recording or talking to people on cameras about trust. And if there's one thing I learned about the homeless population is there is a lack of trust with the average person with a camera because, you know, they want something and they want me to put my face on there and then tell something about me and why I came here. And so I'd be interested to hear how you build the trust with individuals that live in homelessness to tell their stories so that they feel comfortable with you sharing them in a way that really, really raises awareness for this population. Well, great question, but it's not really a homeless issue. It's a human issue. True. I can go into the nicest restaurant in any city with my camera, and half the people will run away from me. I don't, I don't, I, my hair's a mess. I don't want to, you got to come back tomorrow. I don't have my makeup on, or I don't want to be on TV, and half the people will run to you. I want to be on TV. I want to be, you know, it's just a human thing. It really, really is. Now, one of the issues that magnifies when you're dealing with a marginalized population is you're, you have people that are often have not had a shower or uh, they're focused on survival or, uh, you know, gosh, I mean, homelessness sucks. You could, you know, being in a good mood when you're going to the bathroom behind a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot is 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 a challenge. So having somebody come up and 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 you know say, hey, what's your story with the camera? I think it's not so much a camera thing, although it does, you know, it does play a part. The lens changes everything. Once you pull out a camera, dynamics of every relationship changes in all socioeconomical levels. Now for me, it's just respect people. I mean, at the core of invisible people is not really just homelessness, is that everybody's equal. Everybody should be treated the same. And I respect people. I just, uh, I, 
I respect all people. And, you know, a lot of people, most people, the great stories say no. And I respect that. Now, back when I worked media, you know, I would do whatever it took for the story because the story is most important. You know, I either have a client or I have a uh, a boss that is sending you out to get this story, whatever that story is, and you come back with that story. Doesn't matter what the challenge is, the story is the most important. For me, it's people are the most important. And I'm very conscious that homeless people have had you know, bad relationships with media, bad relationships with service providers, bad relationships with other homeless people, bad relationships with the public, bad relationships with the police, bad relationships with business district officers, and I can go on and on and on. So my first priority is to make that experience a good experience. And that means if they say no, I walk away. If they say yes, then I make it you know, uh, a great experience. Also, you got to also understand different than traditional media. The, 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 the video is raw unedited. I can't spin it to be a different story. You're holding to that original commitment of raw interview. Yeah. Besides what now, now I mean, uh, I, I'm able to, to edit the video actually, uh, I have been for – there was a, uh, a production company in Los Angeles that contacted me and they said, you know, we, we understand that you can't edit video because you don't have a computer. Let's, you know, they went and bought me a MacBook Pro. And since then, I've been able to edit video. But I don't now because it's, one, the DNA. That's what's the public's been attracted to. Now, I edit vlogs and other content, but the original core interviews, I don't. And and the biggest part of that is integrity because I you know when you know we all know I'll give you a great example. So uh, I used to produce uh, a half an hour show on homelessness in Los Angeles, and I I I never felt it was the story of homelessness. I thought it was spun. Uh, in fact, I produced my own story and I wasn't, I mean, there, it was based on facts, but the whole thing was spun to raise money. And that's what nonprofits do. It's not bad. You have to raise money to feed people, house people, clothe people. So, but it wasn't really my story. So uh, this is back, oh my gosh, years and years ago. And I borrowed a camera. And I went down to Third Street Promenade, which is a, a mecca for, for homelessness at the time. Still is in a way. And there are some gutter punk kids uh, that, uh, uh, you know, just break your heart. Young girl, two guys. And I interviewed them. Just break your heart. Oh, my gosh. Just, just you know, so much empathy just listening to these kids. And I turn, you know, I stopped the camera. I put it away. I turn. And there is a homeless woman with no arms from Cambodia. And she says to me, those kids are spoiled. And I went, what? So I pulled out my camera and I interviewed her. And she says, you know, even having no arms and living in this country is still better than living in Cambodia. And I realized the power of editing because I could have cut that woman's testimony in with the little kid's testimony. And you would have, depending on what clips I used, 
and how I edited the sequence, you would either love or hate those kids. So there's huge power in editing. And even in the decisions of who you're going to edit, uh, who are you going to interview? So it goes right down to if I feel safe and there's not extreme mental illness or extreme, the person is extremely intoxicated, I'll interview people that I don't think will be in a good interview um, because I don't want to market to myself. I've learned that a story that doesn't necessarily connect with me may connect with others. And I really want it to be about homelessness. I believe documentary filmmakers should capture life as it really is instead of saying, oh, could you walk in a little bit or could you stand over here or could you, uh, you know, um, but back to the raw video, I mean, it's that person's story. If they sneeze, if they swear, if they pick their nose, whatever, it's their story. You don't get more, you can't have more integrity than that. It will never be edited. And I, I think that is maybe part of the attraction. The other, and it was interesting because I don't know if you saw the Dateline piece. Dateline just did, uh, featured me in my work. And uh, Craig Melvin, who's one of the best interviewers uh, that I've ever experienced, he asked me, and I'm shocked no reporter asked me this prior because I've been very blessed to get a lot of, you know, media. He asked me, why do people say yes? Why do they want to be on your YouTube channel? Why would they, you know, tell their story to you? And nobody's asked me that for, uh, you know, years and years and years. I had to think about it. And telling your story is empowering. There's been a couple of situations where, uh, people have shared their story on invisible people and went and changed their life. Um, it's not what I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to get the other people, their viewers, the viewers to go and change homeless people's lives. But it's, you know, you got to look at it. And I wish I had the money to do a focus group, but you got to look at it. Here's people that are ignored constantly all day and somebody comes along and says hey i'm interested in your story it's going to be your story raw and edited whatever you say it's in there and that's empowering it's it's amazing the interactions that i've had you know 300 different cities nine different countries with people all over so i have something to read to you real quick mainly the question is this are we close to homelessness? And it's based off an article, January 20th, 2018 market watch article that says, you know, millions of Americans are one paycheck away from homelessness. Just 39% of Americans say they have enough savings to cover a $1,000 emergency room visit or a car repair. When you hear that millions of Americans are literally one paycheck away from the stories that you tell every day. When I say that, what do you think? How do you react to that? I, I, I react to that. We have a message problem because it's not true. You didn't expect that, did you? No, I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me. I mean, I, 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 it's not that I didn't expect it. I, I'm 
really interested in your thoughts. Well, no, so it, I mean, it is true that millions and millions of people are at risk. It's true that we have uh, a huge problem in this country, mostly affordable housing. There is definitely, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the leading cause of homelessness right now is job loss and eviction. But when you look at the data and you look at homelessness, so the saying, we're all one paycheck away from homelessness, it's not true. It's not. What it is, most people that are, are experiencing poverty never touch homelessness. Most people with mental illness never touch homelessness. Most people that lose their jobs never touch homelessness. Most people doing drugs never touch homelessness. The only predetermining factor to homelessness is you've burnt your social network. So all those people that are one paycheck away from homelessness, when they get to that one paycheck away, they have a mother, a brother, a coworker, or somebody to borrow rent money from. Most of those people will never touch homelessness because they have a social safety net that will take care of them. So that statement is just not true. So do you feel like... I know why people say it, and it's a very common saying. Now, some people, their social safety net might be burnt because mental illness. It might be burnt because of a, a drug addiction or whatever, but it's the the collapse of a social safety net of somebody uh, in your network that is able to prevent you from experiencing homelessness is the only predetermining factor to homelessness. I really love your response. And mainly because I feel like there are myths that we hear around us. There are things that we, that are filled with our head but we never truly think or explore those myths, so to speak. And, and I think the way that you described it really brings out a new perspective, something that I will share with my network of people. The one thing that I take away from it is that for those that are truly homeless, that truly want to rebuild their lives, so to speak, and escape or get back out of homelessness, to re-enter this world, what you know, of jobs and whatever it may be, is it that they're not only having to build rebuild their lives, but they're having to rebuild relationships to rebuild that social safety net, to rebuild those connections, because at the end of the day, relationships are really the big thing that really drives us in, in, in this world, this this capitalistic economy. Would you say? So one of the things that people don't really, even the homeless sector doesn't really pay attention to is how relationships themselves can cause homeless. So divorce is a big one. Um, A death in the family uh, is a big one. When let's say a person is through, you know, maybe their disability payments or other means taking care of the mortgage and they pass away, the other person is a caregiver who doesn't have any income, well, now they get evicted because uh, there's no uh, funding. And uh, I mean, I'm in that situation. Uh, I'm caregiver for my mother, and uh, I don't have a really big income, and uh, I could not cover the rent here or the mortgage. 
And when she, uh, you know, uh, goes on in life, there we might have to sell the house for her health care, which I fully support because I want my mom to have the, the best quality of life. But then all of a sudden, I don't have a place to live. And, you know, now luckily, I've rebuilt my life. And I'm sure there's a uh, somebody in my family that would probably take me in, but there was a point when there wasn't, and that's that's how homelessness uh, happens. I just want to make something very clear because we have to, uh, even though we're busting myths, and, and what's what's interesting when you bust myths, it actually reinforces the old myth. But we have to be really clear when we look at that statement that you first said, uh, paycheck away. Um, even though we're saying, okay, it's relationships, we have an affordable housing crisis in this country. I mean, Los, in Los Angeles, homelessness has increased 75%. If you look like cities in like Denver and, and even rural communities where I'm at, um, the cost of living is skyrocketing. And, you know, a can of corn you know, still costs about the same, but rent and mortgages, uh, is is horrible to really bring this home and this really opened my eyes uh about three weeks ago when i was uh listening to somebody from a tenant rights uh organization speak so in los angeles the last homeless count which is under well, this is a different conversation but there's 40 uh, 53 000 homeless people on the streets of los angeles county well there's two hundred thousand vacant apartments in los angeles county so there's enough housing to house every homeless person four times over. We could end homelessness tomorrow. I and mean, you could go in any city and you're going to find the same thing. The problem is affordability. We, there's housing there and there's apartments there. And why that's important, because we need, if we don't do something about the affordable housing crisis in this country, homelessness is going to get worse. And I, I don't know if you're aware, but we pay, you know, taxpayers pay huge money per homeless person out on the streets. So I have a video on this. If you go to invisiblepeople.tv forward slash housing first, invisiblepeople.tv forward slash housing first, four minute video about housing first. But if we get people off the streets into housing, the average savings is $20,000 per year per homeless person. That's huge because if you multiply it by the 600,000 to 1 million homeless people in this country, you're talking billions of savings every year. Billions, billions of dollars saved every year. The problem is, and this is what is the focus of invisible people, is so often the public will blame somebody. They say, oh, they're a drug addict. They're, you know, I, they got themselves there. They made bad decisions. I'm not going to help them get provide a house for them. Oh, my gosh. They, they're a drug addict. They did this to themselves. They're just lazy. Well, you can call them lazy. You can call them drug addict. You can call them anything you want. You're still paying taxes for them to be out on the street. Huge. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a, a short called Million Dollar Murray that documents how we pay mil a million a year to keep Murray out on the streets. And so as we're looking at this housing crisis, we're looking at it's causing more homelessness, that it's an affordability issue, 
We also have to look at that it's also an economic now to me it's a moral issue we need to save people's lives but it's also an economic issue because by leaving people out on the streets you're paying huge money now criminalization is the most expensive i don't want to say it's a solution because it just moves people around but many communities are passing panhandling laws sit and lie laws uh glendale california you can't smoke cigarettes outside who do you think they ticket? Do you think they ticket somebody walking into the Americana mall going into Macy's that's puffing on a smoke? No, they ticket homeless people. And, you know, it just, it clogs up the court systems. You pay for it. Criminalization is the most expensive. Housing homeless people saves lives, saves money. Why do you do this every day? Well, I don't feel like I have a choice. <laughs> Um, what I mean is I've seen the impact. I know the impacts there. I know that we've reached millions of people and just, uh, what I just said in the, in the previous segment about how, um, you know, there's these misconceptions and how us blaming homeless people, you know, so a lot of people say, well, they made bad decisions. If homelessness was, caused by bad decisions, we'd all be there. If Homelessness is not punishment for bad decisions. And why I do this is because, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, It's if I stopped, this whole work would stop. And literally millions of people this month, last month, and next month are going to be educated about homelessness. Nobody else is doing it. I mean, there's there's some speaker bureaus and there's some you know really uh, neat, wonderful people doing some things at a local level. The National Coalition does some things on a national level with speaker bureaus, but nobody is reaching out to educate the public about homelessness besides invisible people. I just hope that. Uh, you keep on fighting the good fight and telling the great stories. And and I hope our listeners spend a lot of time hanging out on invisiblepeople.tv and watching the videos. Because I think communities like ours, like even my little town of Anderson, South Carolina, could benefit from a larger conversation surrounding homelessness. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.